Well, it's uh, my job, really, the job of anybody who stands up here during the Easter season to remind you that you woke up in a world this morning in which Christ has been risen from the dead. And that is really good news, especially when you experience affliction like you did this morning. No coffee at church. There will be a day when his kingdom is fully inaugurated and you will not have to suffer thus. It, it, it did create a little bit of a commotion, didn't it? Okay, um, I was surprised. Okay, so, um, so here we are. Uh, we have been for uh, quite some time now going through the New City Catechism. If you're just showing up, you have no idea what a catechism is. A catechism walks through the whole body of the Christian doctrine in the form of questions and answers. So we hit not everything you would ever need to know, but we, we try to cover the, the main things that the, the heart of biblical doctrine. So today we're going to look at question number 21 and question number 22. And so as we do each week, we're going to say those together now. Let's read the questions together and the answers. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Question 22. Why must the Redeemer be truly human, that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses? And now hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, I read this morning in the Psalms that those who gaze upon the Lord are radiant. And so, Father, grant that as we spend a few moments gazing through your scriptures upon you, that we would leave with faces aglow with your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said... Okay, when we think of the nature of Christ, we're used to thinking, if you've been in the church at any time, for any amount of time at all, we're used to thinking of his nature being divine and human. Both of those things in Christ at once. But how much of the divine was there and how much of the human was there? I don't think it's too much to say that the way that we answer that question has incredible implications for how our entire relationship with Christ is formed. Now, I'd say that our default position on this question is, I mean, I guess 50-50, 50% God, 50% man, but that is not what the scriptures teach us. In fact, the scriptures teach us something that is mind-boggling that puts, you know, statisticians, you know, to, um, you know, it vexes them greatly, but it says, that Christ is 100% human in his nature and 100% divine. He is all God, he is all human, all at the same time. 
Now, it's my job to tell you about God, about Christ being human today and why that was necessary. Matt will come back next week and talk about why he must be divine. So why was, why did Christ have to be a man? And I must, I must hasten to add that this is not of mere doctrinal importance. It's, I'm not just here to tickle your brain folds today and, and you know, put a, a good answer in the slot where you might not have one. This has tremendous implications for how Christ and us, how we relate to one another. Um, it's an eminently pro- uh, practical doctrine. If you've ever, for example, been swallowed up in loneliness, it's because you've forgotten that Christ became a man. If you've ever been tempted to think that Christ's love does not reach to cover you, it's because you've forgotten that Christ became a man. If you've ever been tempted to believe that there's no one in this universe who advocates on your behalf, specifically you, it's because you've forgotten that Christ became a man. If you are bearing some kind of affliction or suffering in your body, and you're tempted to believe that God has abandoned you, it's because you've forgotten that Christ became a man. So that's what we're going to try to do today, is to come around this answer, um, the answer to this question, why did Christ have to be a man? And so I'm going to answer it in three parts. Each of them you can see pretty plainly in this text. Number one, Christ had to become a man so that he could become a faithful high priest. Number two, he became a man so that he, be, he could become a merciful high priest. And number three, he became a man so that he could offer propitiation for our sins. So a faithful high priest, a merciful high priest, and able to make propitiation. So let's look at each of those in turn. First of all, why did Christ have to become a man? So that he could become a faithful high priest. Look again at verse 17. It says, therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, there's the purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So we're going to look at that faithful part right now. If we're answering the question, why Christ had to be a man, we would do well not to skip too quickly over those two little words that occur in verse 17, had to. He, it says he had to to be made like his brothers. Not just in some respects, it says he he had to be made like us in every respect. So the first part of our answer is this, why did Christ have to become a man? Well, from God's perspective, this says, there was no other choice. He had to. Now, let's follow up the question uh, on that. Why was there no other choice? He had to become a man, it says, so that he could become a faithful high priest. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll remember that the high priest is the one who, I mean, he had many duties, but perhaps the most significant of those duties was to enter one time a year into the most holy place and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people on the day of atonement. Uh, So by entering this most holy place with the blood sacrifice, and making that atonement, that was his role to be a faithful high priest. If he executed those duties right, he was a faithful high priest. So Christ could have become, or could Christ have become, the question is, um, a high priest without becoming a man. 
Like we're trying to figure out why did he have to become a man so he could become a high priest. Couldn't he have been a high priest without becoming a man? Glad you asked. Not according to the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 5.1, if you flip right over there, says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act, to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest was chosen from among the people, and when he went into the most holy place, he was acting as the representative of the people. So if Christ was going to be a faithful high priest, he must take up in his person the most basic of all the requirements for the high priest, namely that he be a man and therefore the representative of the people. Now, the second manner in which he was a faithful high priest, so, so that was first. He's a faithful high priest because he became one of us of the same nature and therefore qualified to become a high priest. Second reason, um, the second manner in which he was a faithful high priest was his holiness. Now, if you had gone back and you had seen, for example, on the Day of Atonement uh, in the ancient days of Israel, if you had seen the high priest dressed up in all of his vestments, which were elaborate, um, all of which came directly from the mind and mouth of God, you would have seen him wearing a turban. And on that turban was a gold plate, a very small plate, in which were inscribed the words, Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. So the high priest was to be holy to the Lord. He was to be devoted to the Lord in every thought, every action, every word. But as we've already seen, the high priest was a man. And as such, he was beset with human weakness. And because, of, because he was just like every other man, namely made of dust. And so the requirement for the high priest is that when he did go into the most holy place, he would go in and he would make sacrifices not only for the people, but the first sacrifice he would make was for his own sins because he was not holy to the Lord. And because we saw uh, in the catechism even just a few weeks ago um, that uh, we all sin against the word, the, the Lord in thought, word, and deed, um, the, the high priest himself, though he bore the inscription, was not holy to the Lord. But Jesus became a man so that he could become our high priest, and he bore those very same words upon his head, holy to the Lord, and he was the only high priest chosen among men who was truly faithful to the office, and who on every occasion, when it was presented to him to go either right or left, stayed on the straight and narrow path. He never broke the law in thought word or deed, he was faithful. And every moment where he was tempted, his response was, I must be about my father's business. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Peter even says as much in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, he says, Jesus committed no sin. There it is. Holy to the Lord. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So there was no sin found in him. I had a seminary professor who liked to say that Jesus was the only one for whom Jesus did not have to die. That's true. He was a faithful high priest. 
And as such, he was our representative before God. He was holy to the Lord in our place as our representative. Okay, that is the first reason why Jesus had to become a man. First, he had to so that he become a high priest. Second, sub-reason there, is that according to the scriptures, um, he had to be chosen from among the people, and so he had to become a man so that he could be a faithful high priest in our place as our representative. Now, I can imagine someone at this point asking a question, and it will go something like this. Okay. Yes, I grant that the whole system you've just described from the Old Testament, New Testament, Christ, and how all that fits in, it's actually nice, it's consistent, it, it, it weighs the same on both sides, but why did God choose that system? I've had people ask me that before. What? Okay, so blood sacrifice in the Old Testament is a shadowy uh, uh, type of what's going to come in the New Testament, and, and then Jesus comes to fulfill it. But why that? What, uh, uh, let's say there's five different systems God could have chosen from. Why did he enact that one? It seems a little much, right? Um, so, I mean, he could have, could, could God not have simply, by divine fiat, snapped the fingers, forgiven all? Now, I have almost no answer to that question. If there are five different systems he could have chosen from, I don't know. I don't know. Um, But I do know this, that you can't read the Bible without realizing that God, throughout the scriptures, has at least two goals. And and almost, I would say, I'm I'm not saying everything because I, surely somebody could prove me wrong here, but I, I think everything falls under these two goals. Number one, God is pursuing his own glory. And number two, he is pursuing the happiness of his people. So everything he does um, goes to those two ends. So if this is the system that he's put in place where there's blood sacrifice and all of this, and Jesus came and he's the high priest and he fulfills it all, if that's the system he has put in place, we can know at least two things. Number one, that this is the system in which he receives the most glory. And number two, this is the system in which his people find the most happiness for their souls. That's all we can know. Otherwise, we're just trying to pry open the ark and peer in, and we're not allowed to do that. So um, we just know that he is glorified in it, and we are happy. So he became a man so that he become a faithful high priest. Let's move on. The second reason that Christ had to become a man is also found in verse 17 of our text, namely that he, he could become a merciful high priest. It says, Um, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So a merciful high priest, secondly. Now let's go back to the the priestly garments that we saw from the book of Exodus and the high priest. Another piece of the attire was the breastplate of judgment that the priest wore right here. And if you could see it, it would, would have been very beautiful. It had 12 different precious stones on it, and each of them represented one of the tribes of Israel. And the point of the breastplate was that the priest was bearing the judgment of the people on his heart as he went into the presence of God. You can read it for yourself. It's in Exodus chapter 26. And and as a faithful high priest then... Christ laid all the miseries of his people to his heart. 
But, but here's what astonishes me. God is, not, God is ignorant of nothing, right? He, th- there's no defect in his knowledge. He, he knows all things, and, and there's nothing that exists that he does not know, through and through, completely. He knows what our miseries are more than we do. So, so that makes me believe that Christ became a man and laid all of our miseries upon his heart, not to increase his own knowledge, which was already perfect, but rather to convince our doubting hearts that he knows our miseries. Right? He, he didn't need to know anything. What's, what this seems to say is that he did this so that we would be convinced that he knows. Verse 18 of our text tells us what it means that Christ is faithful. Verse 18 says, For because he himself, this is what it means to be merciful, for he himself has suffered when tempted, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then he picks up the same theme in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now we must, we must consider those verses carefully. Neither of them say that before Christ was a man, he was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In fact, Go read the Psalms and you will find it is not so. God has always been able to understand our weaknesses. That, of course, would imply that something was missing in the divine knowledge to which the scriptures patently object. Psalm 103 says that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust and therefore he is merciful. So God knows our weaknesses. He understands. But precisely because we are made out of dust, we are tempted to say to God, Do you really know our frame? Do you really remember that we're made out of dust? And so it seems to me that if God has no defect in his knowledge, if he has no defect in his bowels of mercy, then Christ became a man and suffered, not so that he would gain knowledge, but so that we would know that he tells the truth when he says, I know your frame. Now, the particular way in this verse, that Christ shows his sympathy, that Christ exhibits his mercy, is by helping us in our temptation. It says that he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted, and yet was without sin. His own temptations, therefore, become the pathway for us into his presence when we are likewise tempted. I mean, think of all the ways that you are tempted on a daily um, on a daily basis, all the ways that you are tempted to reject Christ in thought, word, and deed, and how often we do it. Not just tempted, but actually follow through with it. Think of all of that. And so he has suffered temptation just as you have. So when we come to him under the weight of all our temptation and say, do you see my suffering? Do you see what it's costing me to follow you? He can say, I see that suffering, and I know it. I have been tempted in every way, just as you have, and so I have mercy upon you. 
but there's an objection, isn't there? Yeah, I, I, know, I know what it is. Um, if you're like me, uh, right now you're presented with a doubt, a very obvious one, that says something like this. Um, you want to believe that Christ knows what it's like to be tempted as you are, but isn't there that pesky doctrine of Christ uh, not having a sin nature? Did, did, did he just have the ace in the pocket? And so when it says he's been tempted in every way as you are, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. I mean, that's kind of significant, right? I mean, imagine two men sitting in a restaurant at the end of a long day at work. One of the men is an alcoholic, and he's in his first week of recovery. The other man drinks casually but has no struggle whatsoever with it. And the first man, the alcoholic, says, man, it was a rough day, and you would not believe the temptation I have right now to order a drink. To which the other man says, yeah, it was a rough day. Yeah, I want a drink too. I understand. To which the alcoholic is probably going to say, you have no idea. You don't have that gritty, gnarly, hungry, never-ceasing thing inside of you called addiction. I, I am fighting tooth and nail. You? you? You don't even have to work to resist this. Isn't that what it feels like when Christ, I know, Christ says, I know. Look, I sympathize. And you're like, no, you don't. No, you don't. If we're honest, if we're honest. If we allowed ourselves to give full vent to our skepticism, it might sound something like that. But if that's your doubt, let me try to answer it with an illustration that I heard one time from John Stott. He said, um, you know, we've all seen pictures of cities that have been, um, after a tornado, a tornado has come through and there, there are some buildings on the ground and there's some buildings that are still standing, some buildings that are greatly damaged. And Stott asks the question, okay, which of those buildings sustained the full power of the wind? Which when I first heard it, I thought, I guess the buildings that fell down. He said, no, it's not the buildings that fell down. Because there was some sort of internal, internal ballast that was uh, lacking in them, maybe some old construction. And so when the winds got up to 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, those tumbled. But the buildings that were still standing, they, they experienced and, and withstood the 50 miles an hour, the 60 miles an hour, the 70 miles an hour. And then it came up to 80 miles an hour and 90 miles an hour and 100 miles an hour. And eventually it passed and that building was still standing. It was the building that was still standing that received the full force of the destructive power of the tornado. And so lay this to your doubting heart, as I have this week. It's true that Christ was not born with a sin nature. That much is true. But that means not that he was tempted less than you and me, but that he withstood winds of temptation that you and I could never possibly conceive. It's not a point in his favor. The temptation was massive. When Satan comes, I mean, you know this, when Satan comes to tempt us, in some pla he knows the places, all he has to do is just touch it and it falls to the ground. I, I mean, we're, we fall so easily but he unleashed the full power of his furious anger and deceit 
upon our Lord Jesus. So when he says that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, it means not that he has been tempted less than us, but that he has been tempted more. So that's the next reason that Christ had to become a man, so that we could be sure that he indeed sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now somewhere in a book or a sermon, I can't remember which, uh, I once heard Brendan Manning tell, tell the following story. He told the story of this Hasidic rabbi that he had met one time who said that he found the true meaning of love in a, in a Polish pub in the countryside from two drunken peasants. He said he walked into the pub and these two peasants were at the table very deep into their cups and they were protesting their love for one another. Oh, we are such good friends. We've been friends forever. We love one another. I love you. No, I love you. And then after another drink, Ivan looks at Peter and says, Peter, tell me, what hurts me? And Peter said, how would I know what hurts you? To which Ivan said, if you don't know what hurts me, how can you say that you love me? Be assured, dear people of God, that Christ knows what hurts you. That his love is complete. And because he became a man, and because he suffered in his flesh, he knows what hurts you. Have you ever been lonely? Christ was also abandoned by those whom he, who loved him, or whom he loved. Have you ever prayed with an earnestness that the particular cup that you're being asked to drink would pass from you, and it doesn't? Christ has experienced that pain. Have you ever been grieved to your bones over the loss of someone you loved? Then then see your great high priest standing outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus lifting up his voice in lamentation and weeping. He knows. Have you ever suffered in your body? Then see the bleeding majesty of your Lord Jesus, holy to the Lord upon his cross, and be convinced he sees what hurts you. He knows. Now, that is the second reason why Christ must be man, so that he could become a merciful high priest. Thirdly, in our text, it says that he was made man, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the word propitiation, not surprisingly, is very important to the meaning of this little phrase, and it's probably the most obscure word in this little phrase. The word propitiation has to do with the relationship between God's wrath and the unleashing of that wrath on a sinner. That's what the word has to do with. Now, there are actually two words in, scriptures, in the scriptures that um, we find that God uses to solve the problem of wrath and sin. Two words. Number one is expiation. Number two is propi pro okay. <laughs> propitiation. Expiation and propitiation. 
both of those words solve the problem of God's wrath against sin. The first, expiation. I'm not going to tax your attention with, you know, long etymologies, um, because all you need to know about these words are actually bound up in the words themselves. Expiation occurs when a sacrifice for sin turns away the wrath of God. You see that in the little prefix, X, E-X, like exit, to go. It, it turns away the wrath of God. Propitiation also occurs in the same sacrifice, and it describes the reality of God because of his wrath being turned away, now reacts favorably to the one who was formerly his enemy. That's the idea of propitiation. And you can see that in the prefix pro, which means for or towards, like, like our word proceed, to go towards something. Now, we see here that Christ became a man so that he become high priest, so that he could perform the chief action of the high priest, namely to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to turn the favor of God towards them and the wrath of God away from them. That was his job as high priest. Now, follow me for a moment. When the ancient high priests entered into the most holy place to offer blood for the sins of the people, he brought with him bulls and goats, for the slaughter. That's where the blood came from. But there was a problem with this system, which the author of Hebrews points out in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it says the following, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, this is a complex uh, little verse here, but let me just say, let me just explain by summary what it's saying is that the people who rely on the turning away of wrath on the blood, they rely on the blood of bulls and goats to turn away the wrath of God. The problem is, it can't happen. It's not working. It doesn't make them perfect. Otherwise, they would have not ceased, verse 2, to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the problem with the system. That a, a bull, a goat, could never stand in for a human. The, the, the worth is fundamentally not equal. So it was... The, the expiation, the turning away of God's wrath at the sacrifice of a bull was temporary and insufficient. The propitiation, the turning towards God to the sinner favorably was also temporary and insufficient because every year it had to happen again. And every year people are reminded, I, I'm not going to get out of this. Every year I've fallen again, and every year blood is required again. A goat is so far inferior in terms of value than a human being that it was only a shadow of a substitute. A goat could not bear the full weight and responsibility for the full measure of even one human's sin, let alone the whole lot of them. So it was an imperfect system which was the shadow of the perfect system which was to come later. And what is that system? He continues. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings 
you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I come to do your will. He does away with the first order, goats, bulls, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering, listen, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And... Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So why did Christ have to become a man? The answer in this particular section is that we needed a better sacrifice. We needed a better sacrifice for sins. The blood of bulls and the blood of goats was not cutting it. So, if you've, if you've wandered away, come listen to this. Why did Jesus have to become a man? So that he could become capable of death. In his divinity, in his eternity, in his infinitude, He was incapable of dying. And so he took up flesh. He took up the human nature so that he would be able to die. A better sacrifice was needed. More potent blood was required to be shed for us. So Christ became a man. And the sacrifice then, a body you have prepared for me, a sacrifice then was commensurate with the demand. It was no longer a goat or a bull in place of a human. It was a man just like us, except in addition to just being a man, he was also the infinite God, which made the cup large enough to receive the full measure of God's wrath that was poured into it. Not just for one of us, but for all of us. He died for your sins and for mine. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, never to die again. And a little later, he ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God, where he never ceases to make intercession for his people. Now think of this. This may be the most astonishing thought I've had in a long time. At the right hand of God sits a man. At the right hand of God sits a man. At the right hand of God sits one of us. 
an advocate who knows our weaknesses, who sympathizes with our temptations, who loves us so much that he would give up his own life for us. That's the one who sits at God's right hand. That's the one whose whole job between the time he ascended and the time he returns is to take up your cause before the Father. One of our own is there and he advocates for us day and night. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the people of God said, Amen. Now, Christ has set our table this morning in anticipation that you would need sympathy in your weakness, that you would need comfort in your sorrow, that you would need beauty arising out of ashes. So when you come to this table, you come not merely to eat bread and drink a cup, You come to ingest the sympathy of your Lord. He knew you would need this today. These are signs that are pointing beyond themselves to the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus, to the propitiation he enacted with that body and blood, and the signs point beyond that even to his own love for you, his sympathy So long ago, the writer to Hebrews wrote those words. Jesus taking up in his own mouth saying, a body you have prepared for me. Well, today he has prepared his body for you yet again. Not for a sacrifice, that was done once and for all. But for your help and for your faith, for your comfort and for your strengthening. And so as you come, don't be afraid. He has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that he loves you and that he knows what hurts you. So come and find your comfort. Let's pray. Father, what can we say to such things? Our Lord became a man, and he dwelt among us. He walked on our earth. He experienced our hungers. He experienced our sorrows. And now he takes all of that and he brings it to you on our behalf. Father, all we have to do is worship. We have nothing else. So grant us that grace now as we come to the table. I pray that if you have opened the sorrows of some particular of your people, that as they come, you would meet them at this table. You know, we love you. Thank you for pulling the curtain back just momentarily so that we may see into the kingdom. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
All of God's people who trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are invited to this table. This is your meal, this is your comfort, this is where Christ offers you his sympathy. But if you are not a believer here today, if you don't know that comfort, you don't know the sympathy of the Lord of the universe, then you must believe. You, there, there's, there is a seat for you at this table. And if, and if you felt your heart awakened this morning, then believe and come and take what is yours. If, if not, then, then stay where you are and, and wonder before the Lord, why, why did you have me here today? Why this particular day? What, what is going on now? And see what he says. So, people of God, you are welcome to the table.